Hi, I'm Dina. And I'm Anoshi. And, and this, this is Formalized Curiosity, a podcast of cross-cultural conversations in our quest to understand the world around us. This episode is part of our series on dysfunction, where we explore the ways in which our political, economic, and social systems malfunction, why it happens, and sometimes how to fix them. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Formalized Curiosity. Uh, Today, we're excited to share part B of our deep dive into the world of Israeli politics, uh, focusing on the election that took place in March of 2021. This election was significant in the country's 73-year history because, for the first time, a political party representing Israel's Arab minority attained unprecedented level of political power by entering into Israel's governing coalition. The results of this election speak to a broader question. How do marginalized, underrepresented groups attain political power within a system that has historically excluded them? We've broken up our discussion of this topic into two separate episodes. This is part B, where you'll hear a discussion with Professor Amal Jamal from Tel Aviv University, as he provides his perspective on the election based on his decades of research on the political activity of Israel's citizens of Palestinian origin. If you are already an Israeli politics expert, continue onwards for a fun and exciting conversation with one of the world's experts. If you're a little rusty on coalitional politics and Arab parties in Israel, you may want to start with part A, which provides the background you'll need. All right, let's get going. Today, we are really excited to have Professor Amal Jamal with us to help us understand what happened in this last Israeli election and to help place it into a broader social and political context. Um, So just by way of background, Professor Jamal is the Associate Professor of Political Science and Political Communication at Tel Aviv University. Um, In his over 20-year career, he's written over 100 peer-reviewed articles on research fields as broad as state structure and civil society, political democratization, social movements, minority nationalism, and the struggle for civic equality. Most notably, he's the author of many books as well, including two books which explore the the politics and civic activism of Israel's homeland Palestinian minority. Um, Outside of the academic sphere, Professor Jamal also served as the general director of the Elam Media Center, a Palestinian NGO based out of Nazareth, which is engaged in research, education, and activism in service of Israel's Palestinian Arab community. Professor Jamal is also a member of Israel's Druze community, a religious and ethnic minority within Israel's Arab population. So I can't think of anyone better to help us dive into the events of this most recent election and its implication for Israel's Palestinian Arab minority. Professor Jamal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, uh, thank you very much for joining us. We are very excited. I'm glad to be here. Um, So I guess let let me start first, and this is perhaps a slightly orthogonal question to the rest of the discussion, but I think it's important in order for us to understand correctly terms and terminology. Um, So the Jewish population in Israel tends to refer to the Arab citizens of Israel as Israeli Arabs. I'll say it in Hebrew also to be clear, it's Arvie Israel. 
Uh, however, in your book, you refer to this population as the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Uh, can you perhaps explain the distinction between those two terms and one, why one might be preferable over the other? Yeah, good question. Uh, good start. Uh, first of all, yes, the official uh, name of uh, this community uh, given uh, by the state uh, after 1948 uh, is Israeli Arabs. Uh, which means uh, it, it, the naming has uh, uh, broad political ramifications uh, for the placing, the history, and the political prospects of, of this community. First of all, Israeli Arabs mean that there is a possessive relationship between this community and the state of Israel, uh, seen from the point of view of the state. Uh, and they are similar to any other uh, Arab population in the region, like Arab Lebanese, uh, Egyptian Arabs, uh, Jordanian Arabs, and so on and so on. So they are uh, Israeli Arabs. Of course, uh, this uh, is a very political uh, uh, naming of, of this community uh, uh, in order, first of all, as I said, to set their identity in relationship to the Israeli state. Uh, second, to start their history with the history of the state and uh, define the political horizons uh, of uh, this community from within the Israeli legal order or citizenship rules. Uh, so that's why I say it's political. And the way I name them as uh, Palestinians, citizens of Israel, they are part of the Palestinian people, which means that the, the Palestinians who remained after the 1940 uh, war inside the state of Israel were part and parcel of the Palestinian people who actually uh, sought and, and fought for uh, self-determination in the land of Palestine, uh, uh, which they view as their homeland. And uh, so they are Palestinians uh, in nationality, uh, Palestinians in culture, uh, Palestinians in history, uh, and, and so on and so on. Uh, the fact that there are citizens of the state of Israel actually should not and, and uh, ought not to uh, determine neither their history nor their identity uh, nor their political uh, uh, future political prospects. Actually, uh, uh, my books mentioned uh, by you um, on civil activism come actually to uh, reiterate uh, the fact that based on their political behavior, we see that uh, uh, they seek to, first of all, maintain their Palestinian heritage, Palestinian identity, protect their rights as part of the Palestinian people, although they have accepted, uh, at least uh, de facto, the fact that they are uh, citizens of the state of Israel and have to act according to the rules of the game within the Israeli state. So this combination, uh, Palestinian and Syrian of Israel, comes to articulate this complex and hybrid and maybe a com uh, a complicated history and political behavior. Yeah, wow. Yeah, no, that, that's a really interesting point. So now, I guess... Turning to the to the election itself. So first, you know, many people, including yourself, I think, have argued that the dominant 
Jewish parties have historically refused to enter into coalitions with the Arab parties, thus preventing the outcome that we observed. Why do you think the result was different in this election then? This is a a long, short story. First of all, you're you're right about the fact that uh, none of the Arab parties were invited, actually, by the Jewish parties to join the governmental coalition, given the fact that we are speaking about parliamentary system, uh, majoritarian system, um, where many parties uh, participate in elections. And at the end of the day, a coalition is usually composed out of minimum uh, three parties and more. In this case, we are talking about eight parties uh, forming the, the coalition. So in the past, they were not invited. And uh, in order to understand what happened, we have to give a, a preview of, of the Israeli political scene in the last uh, few years. First of all, we are talking about uh, uh, what we call in political sense a dominant party system, meaning that the Likud has managed to establish itself the main, the main, as a major party without which uh, no uh, coalition could be formed for a long period of time, meaning 10 years at least. None of the other parties were in place to actually replace the Likud as the major party within a coalition. This is one thing. The other thing is that uh, within the Likud, we have to take into consideration that one political leader managed actually to uh, institutionalize himself as the exclusive leader of the party. And as a result, as the most dominant uh, uh, persona in the political system. Uh, so just to clarify, when Professor Jamal is talking about the one political leader who became the dominant persona, he's actually referring to Benjamin Netanyahu, who is currently the head of the Likud party, and of course, served as the prime minister of Israel until this recent election that took place on March 2021. Yeah, and therefore he was able to actually de- de- determine who is allowed and who is not allowed, who is legitimate and who is not legitimate to be part of the, the coalition. And to an extent, actually, uh, in the political uh, sphere in general, uh, he was so dominant that he was able to set the limits who is considered legitimate and who is considered non-legitimate. Now, this is not new in the, in the, in the practical sense. What is new is that in the discursive sense that uh, in the past, prime ministers avoided actually uh, delegitimizing Arab votes to an extent that uh, any coalition with them would be considered betrayal. Some in the nationalist parties in the past have spoken about this, but actually uh, 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 made it in the practical, uh, in a practical way that uh, avoided actually the need for a coalition with Arab parties. Now, as a result of the political situation that we experienced the last couple of years, uh, in which the Likud is a dominant party in the system, but does not win a majority in order to form a coalition, but at the same time blocks any other party from being able to form a coalition. This reality has led to four rounds of elections within two years. Now, uh, uh, experiencing his this ability or inability to form 
uh, a, a coalition in the elections 2019, and then twice uh, in April and September, as well as in 2020. He experienced, I mean, Netanyahu, the pri former prime minister, experienced an ability to form a coalition uh, with Zionist parties. I see. So where do the Arab parties come in then? The fact that he was unable to form a coalition created a new reality uh, in which he was in need for Arab votes. He needed the Arab votes who are, were considered by him himself uh, uh, illegitimate. He needed them in order to have a majority. So he started talking about uh, legitimizing uh, part of them, or at least uh, certain voices within them. He actually uh, approached the Arab community to vote for the Likud, but at the same time managed to split the uh, uh, Grand Arab Parties Coalition called the Joint List, which was formed by a coalition of four Arab parties and ran together uh, in, in the former elections. He managed to split them by actually convincing part of them, and especially here, Ram, you mentioned Ram, uh, Ram is a, 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 a small coalition of uh, the Islamic movement and other uh, uh, small parties. Uh, they, he managed to convince them that a coalition with him uh, actually will enable them to have much more power than being part of the joint list uh, in the opposition. Uh, this is one thing. And the other thing is that uh, in case they join him, uh, of course, this uh, will have uh, positive, constructive implications, not only for the current elections, but actually for the uh, legitimacy of Arab votes in the future. So this was the scene in which Arab parties were uh, uh, to consider to join or not to join. Now, uh, given the tensions within the uh, uh, joint list between different Arab parties, and we are talking about uh, maybe we can explicate this a, a bit later, but we are talking about Islamic movement on the one hand, Communist Party on the, one, on the other hand, and another, another uh, 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 two small parties with nationalist uh, secular views. Now, this coalition was very tense, very was very diplomatic, and the, and the Islamic movement did not and have not actually accepted the leadership of the communists inside the joint list. So they saw the call and the need of Netanyahu as an opportunity actually to split from the joint list, join the government, and uh, have more power within the, within the system. And they their argument was, or has been, uh, that if our participation in the Israeli elections is in, uh, is in order to actually have power on decision-making and have more resources uh, from the state, so... Being in that opposition is not effective. Therefore, joining the coalition, no matter what the identity of the partners in the coalition, given that they are all Zionists, given they are look at the Arab the Palestinian community in the same way, so there is no difference between center left and center right. We should join whoever actually offers us the opportunity to join. So this discourse managed actually to lead to a situation that. Uh, to open new opportunities, uh, that, uh, hoping uh, oh. from the side of Netanyahu and from the side of Ram that Netanyahu will have enough power to ask them to join and uh, uh, to form a new coalition. 
but this coalition involving Ram and the Likud didn't actually end up forming, right? Because the coalition of Zionist parties who were against the Likud and against Netanyahu and were not willing to join him to form a coalition created a, a, a numerical situation uh, uh, according to which even when uh, uh, an Arab party Ram joins the coalition of Netanyahu, he will not have a majority. And therefore, the numerical situation led to uh, 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 a reality in which a coalition of seven parties, seven Zionist parties, were able actually to have a majority in case Ram, the Islamic movement, joins the coalition. And uh, then they had no choice, since Netanyahu has no opportunity to form a coalition, they decided to go with actually the, the, the current coalition. And this is actually a breakthrough in the history of the uh, political reality of the Palestinians in Israel. Now, some people really like it. Some people don't like it. Uh, we can come to that in a minute. But this is the reality so that people understand that it's not, it wasn't, it wasn't an easy step for neither of the parties. Uh, also, for those who in, uh, uh, are in the coalition now, um, it's not easy for them to have actually an Arab party within the coalition uh, with its own, of course, uh, demands, with own grievances, with own uh, stipulations and and uh, and, and, and uh, limits uh, on on the. Uh, on the maneuvering spaces of the government, uh, but it's it's very interesting reality to understand. You are saying, in fact, that Netanyahu delegitimized the Arab votes first, right? This was a course of twenty years almost that we're coming to that this was his main conversation, and. During this past four elections, yeah, we, we came to four, uh, he actually, because he had no other choice, he was the one who legitimized them, right? Uh, so it, in a way, Netanyahu was the blame for not having Arab in the government, but also the the solution or or the reason for having them now in the coalition, right? Yeah, this is right. I mean, he, he wasn't the first not to join, the, to, to, to ask them to join. Uh, all prime ministers in the past, all Zionist parties were not willing to join. Now, during Netanyahu's period, and Netanyahu is a, a very central figure in the political system since 1996, he actually adopted a very radical discourse vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians in, in, a, in a talk he gave when he was uh, uh, Minister of Treasury in the Sharon government in 2002, he actually named them as the main enemy of the Jewish state. He coined them as the main enemy of the Jewish state. And, and he continued since then actually to view them as very problematic for the security and for the identity of the state. As I said, the reality uh, he found himself in is a rigid, residual reality. He did not intend actually to legitimize their voice and their vote. Uh, he found himself in need of their support. And therefore, he, he started to change in the last elections in, in 2021. <clears throat> he actually started to change uh, his, his discourse and his political campaign for the election. Actually, uh, uh, he added 
Arabic language, uh, and he uh, approached the Arab community. He visited Arab towns, hoping that he can convince enough people to actually join and vote the Likud. And therefore, he won't need the Arab party. If he, if he were to uh, win enough votes from the Arab community for the Likud party, uh, up to two Knesset seats, he would have actually crossed the threshold of 60 seats in the Knesset. But it didn't work out. He found himself in a situation that he actually legitimized them, but he was not able to form a coalition with them, but opened the opportunity for the other side of the political map to actually incorporate them and win them for a majority in the Knesset. So there's the political expediency of including the the Arab parties within the governing coalition. But I think very early on in your in your previous answer, you also said that previously including Arab parties within the coalition was considered a betrayal. And you could even envision on both sides um, among the Arab parties, perhaps joining with the, the Zionist parties is also considered a betrayal. So what do you think in this particular situation led this notion of betrayal to be sort of underweighted relative to the political expediency argument? Uh, let me tell you something about political about politics. Uh, politics tend to frame itself in ideological terms, and it has ideological underpinnings, but it's a practical field also. It's a very pragmatic, practical field. It's the, it's the art of the possible. And therefore, uh, there are radical nationalist Zionist parties uh, that were not willing to think even about any coalition with the Arabs or legitimizing the Arab vote. Uh, even th- within the Likud, we have such voices. Uh, the post-elections uh, speeches of Netanyahu show that he was, that's what he claimed, that he actually was manipulative vis-a-vis the Arabs. He did not want them to join the coalition. He never legitimized this step of joining the coalition. Actually, he wanted to manipulate them to vote for him and then not to be in need for them for the coalition. On the other hand, we have to take into consideration that Naftali Bennett, the current prime minister, and Gidon Saar and Lieberman, who are ministers in that current government, are also nationalist parties. The head national party, they, 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 Lieberman spoke much more badly about the Arabs in the past. Uh, Gidon Saar the same, uh, and Naftali Bennett the same. Naftali Bennett, in, during his campaign for the current the last elections, uh, promised and signed even a document saying that he's not going to form a government with uh, the support of Arab parties. Uh, but as I said, politics is a pragmatic uh, field. And uh, uh, sometimes when you are in need, you can justify any step, even if it contradicts everything you have said in the past. So that's what happened here. The uh, uh, enmity and the uh, unwillingness to uh, join Netanyahu for a, for a coalition. And the bad experience, the bad blood, you say, uh, uh, in Hebrew and Arabic, between different personalities within the Israeli system. And I mentioned at least four of them, Netanyahu, Bennett, Saar, and Lieberman. Uh, uh, the last three were not willing to join Netanyahu because he degraded them. He actually manipulated them more than once. Therefore, they did not trust him 
the same thing with guns, as we know from the former government, he manipulated guns also. So guns was also not willing uh, to join the government. So the, the reality which was created as a result of the elections, that there are actually not many options possible. Either these parties, uh, these leaders in these small parties betray their voters and join Netanyahu, or Netanyahu actually steps down from the Likud leadership and say, I have no support, they should form a government without me, or either of them manages to convince an Arab party to join. It, the results were so that Netanyahu did not have this option. Uh, so just as a side note, because I don't think we mentioned it in the introduction, uh, in fact, Smotrich, the head of the ultra-right Zionist party, wasn't willing to join the government with an Arab party. On the other hand, Bennett posed an ultimatum that he will only join if Netanyahu will show him that he has collected a majority already. This meant Netanyahu was unable to form a governing coalition. Therefore, the president allowed Yair Lapid, head of Yeshatid party, and the current alternate prime minister to attempt to form a coalition. This left us with one option, or actually two options. One, form the current government, or go for another elections. And having the experience of four rounds of elections within two years, I've showed everybody that it's not worth uh, taking the risk, especially that Saar was very close to the threshold. Bennett himself was very close to the threshold. Uh, uh, Lieberman was losing power. And Gans was surprised even to win eight seats in the, uh, in the, in, in the Knesset. So none of them wanted actually to take the risk of uh, going for another round. And uh, they were you know, pushed to the wall, as we say, and had no option uh, because any uh, uh, round uh, uh, of elections would have led to wiping away part of them and actually giving Netanyahu the opportunity to form a government. And therefore, uh, they uh, um, betrayed uh, the promises, their voters actually, vis-a-vis -vis the promises they made. Uh, Ram, on the other hand, by the way, did not betray. Arab parties did not betray the, the promises they made. The joint list, meaning the small joint list, the communists, uh, the and the nationalists uh, did not betray because they did not join. They said from the beginning, we are not willing to join. Ram uh, actually did not promise not to join. In the contrary, he spoke about uh, joining as long as the government is willing to give them whatever they are asking for. And uh, uh, leading, you know, running in, in, in the elections was so clear uh, that, sorry, in case they are asked to join, they are going to join because from their point of view, they, as I said before, will prove that they are the most sophisticated party within the Arab system, within Israel, and that uh, they actually manage to establish themselves as the best strategists vis-a-vis -vis the 
political future of the Palestinian community inside Israel. And that's why they joined. So we ended up with this very uh, complex uh, government uh, out of eight parties, but none of them has any interest in uh, violating the rules of the game uh, and risking the stability of the government. And we see it happening you know, in the last two months. Tomorrow, it's going to be two months for this government. And it seems to be working very well. Now, it's not, of course, doing everything that was promised by any of the parties uh, within the government. Uh, Ram is not managing actually to have the impact it thought it will have in the government, but all of them have uh, uh, the interest not to risk the stability of the government and go for another election, especially given the fact that Netanyahu uh, is still hitting the opposition inside the parliament, and in any future elections, he's going to be the candidate for the prime minister of the Likud party. And uh, given that he is the greatest enemy of these parties, so I think it's it's going well for them, for, for so far at least. Interesting. Yeah, I I wanted to put a pin on the on the impact of Ram within this particular government because I think that's a super interesting point. But I did want to go back man, then to to the question of why it was Ram in particular that chose to run on this platform of joining the coalition. I think you said that they had a prior willingness or I guess a desire to to break away from the communist sector of the joint list, but um but on, but I guess more broadly, like should should we be surprised that it was Ram, or is this something that you know we should have seen the signs of all along? It is surprising, as a matter of fact, because they are uh, uh, Ram, as I said, is actually the Islamic movement, and uh, the Islamic movement, part of the Muslim Brotherhood in the region, is conceived to be you know a radical ideological party. Uh, First of all, I think uh, that part of the Muslim Brotherhood has decided, like in Nahda in Tunis, Tunisia, and uh, uh, an extent to a certain period of time in in, uh, in Turkey, in Malaysia, in in, uh, in Indonesia, and and other places. I don't want to mention all Islamic states. A certain strand of Islamic movements have taken what is called the Wasati rule which means the middle road, which means a very pragmatic uh, uh, ideological uh, perception of reality, very practical, uh, given the fact that in Islam there is no, according to them at least, there is no separation between state and religion, that uh, being a state means actually being able to uh, uh, encompass all uh, kinds of uh, social segments and social beliefs and giving services uh, to all uh, uh, you know segments of society. So this perception actually was has been the main stream within the Islamic movement in Israel uh, for a long period of time. Just to jump in here, has the entirety of the Islamic movement always agreed on this sort of pragmatism as a political strategy? Yeah. Now, we know, historically, just to give you a hint, uh, 
1996, the Islamic movement was split as a result of the, uh, an internal discussion whether to go actually to join elections for the Knesset or not. And uh, this uh, 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 wing, what we call the pragmatic wing from the Islamic movement that joined the Knesset the elections is differentiated or differentiate itself from what is called the dogmatic uh, wing of the Islamic movement that did not join elections because in their view, participating in the elections in Israel for the Israeli Knesset is legitimizing Zionism. That's, that's why they did not join. But those who joined from the start said, we are an Islamic minority within a non-Islamic state. Like, you know, the Indians, Muslim Indians in the UK, or the Pakistani Muslims in the UK, or the North African Muslims in France, or Turks in Germany, and so on and so on. We are Palestinians, we know our history, we know our heritage, but politically we have to understand that we are we live in a non-Islamic state. So the strategy that has to be adopted by Islamic movements who live or, and work and operate in non-Islamic state is different from Islamic movements that can you know, control the state. It's different because they are a small minority and they have to do the best they can in order to serve their, to give service to their community. Giving service to the community has become one of the main goals of the Islamic movement in this wing, at least in, in Israel. And, and that's why they are ideologically uh, more pragmatic and more willing to see themselves joining uh, not only the Knesset, but also the, uh, the government. Now, this same wing published actually their manifesto about three years ago. And uh, in their manifesto, they argue that uh, Islam is uh, a religion of mercy. Islam is a religion of service. Islam is a, uh, uh, a religion of equality and, and the pluralism and tolerance and so on and so on. The leading figure inside the party and some people around him have written this, who wrote this manifesto, actually uh, 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 middle-class people who are pragmatic on both ways and their you know, religious belief, but also in their daily life. And, and that's why I think uh, they were willing to uh, take this step, given the fact that they are Islamic movement. They think that being Islamic movement give them, they are shielded. They, they, it's a shield that protects them from any attack from the outside, unlike the communists, meaning that they are authentic to the community, that most of the community is conservative, a large part of it is religious. And uh, they want to live. They want to have resources. They want to solve problems. And uh, and how did Ram sell this idea to the voters? So they argue that taking the step does not mean giving up on their demands, their identity, their heritage, and as well as not forgetting that they are living in a Jewish state. 
with Zionist ideology that is antagonistic to their history, their people, and so on and so on. So if we want to change, that's what they argue, if we want to change Israeli politics and we don't want to take a radical uh, 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 road, meaning uh, armed struggle, uh, terrorism, and so on and so on, what options we have? We are part of a parliamentary system in which we have the opportunity to have some influence. We are not, we know that we, we are not going to change the identity of the state. We are not going to uh, be able actually to dezenize Israel. Uh, we are not going to change the nature of the majority inside the parliament. But at least if we join, we will be able to have more impact than playing from the outside. Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting argument that you make. What do you think about how things played out? Those who support the step taken by, the measure taken by the, by Ram, say, let's give it a chance. We have never tried any other uh, uh, strategy. Let's give it a chance. At, at least uh, unveil the real face of these parties and the Israeli government. If it doesn't work, then it means that we have no prospects uh, to remain actually in the system. If it works and we see that we have more power, we open an opportunity, historical opportunity, to actually seize any structural numerical opportunity in order to impact the government and lead to a change. If we want to reconcile with Israel as Palestinians, we have the opportunity to influence Israeli politics from within. Uh, I had many times, and recently even the former uh, a Jordanian foreign minister say, saying that the Palestinians inside Israel are the main group within the Palestinian people. They are the main player because they have the most influence on what's going on. Palestinians in the occupied territories, uh, neither in Gaza nor in the West Bank, can influence Israeli politics. The Arab world, as in discovery, can't influence Israeli politics. The only group that, from, from within the game itself, can actually have some impact is the uh, Palestinians inside Israel. And a remark for this, or a, a note for this, is the fact that the joint list or the communists and the national, part of the nationalists, are willing to negotiate with the current government their support for the budget, the governmental budget. The governmental budget actually determines the policy of the government. The example that you describe with the budget is actually a really great illustration that the Arab parties are becoming significant players within Israeli politics, whereas before they were they were merely present. What do you think has changed says that they're now active participants in the political scene, aside from, of course, the numerical realities that you described? I think this is this has come to be a, a remarkable conclusion as a result of two main historical processes. One, that Politics can change. The political game is an open game. And it needs, uh, it's not a sprint uh, uh, run, it's it's a marathon. And you have to have enough uh, capacity and enough uh, patience in order to know when you are able to seize an opportunity to create a change. This is one, and have an impact. This is one thing. And I think this realization is the result of deeper social processes 
taking place within the community, mainly the rising power of the middle class inside this community. There is a rising, uh, 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 um, you know, segment within this community that has been doing very well economically, uh, sarcastically as a result of the neoliberal policies led by Netanyahu in the last two decades. Uh, not because he loves Arabs, because, you know, in neoliberal economy, it's an open market and the educated middle class is actually doing very well. Also the Palestinian, not only the Jewish. So this deeper change has led this segment of the community to say that, to be realistic, actually, say, let's give it a try. Let's go for this direction. And that's why we see part of this segment speaking to the communists. You know, you actually were speaking about the strategy, but the Islamists were much more sophisticated than you are. And to, to know how one to seize the opportunity. Uh, you missed the opportunity, you, but this is your strategy. So this is one, one process that we have to take into consideration inside um, uh, internal uh, social changes. The second process, historical process, is what happened in the Arab world in general and Palestinian uh, society in, in particular. Uh, Palestinian society, I mean, in the occupied territories. You know, none of us have forgotten what happened in the last 10 years in what we call the Arab Spring. It has devastated most of the Arab states, most Arab societies, at least in the, uh, in the states around Israel. Egypt, uh, Egypt, Egyptian economy is in ruins. Uh, political stability there is pro very problematic. Syria in civil war, Iraq in civil war, Lebanon almost in civil war, and so on. So any prospects that they had, uh, um, you know, from the surrounding area, uh, meaning that if the peoples were to seize power in the Arab world, and the Arab societies will become democratic, or Arab states will be, would have become democratic, they would have supported more the Palestinian issue and pressured Israel and so on and so on. The fact that this did not happen, actually the contrary happened. The Arab world is much weaker today than it, had, it was in the past. So they have no option to build on uh, any pressure from the outside. This means that they are don't trust the Western world to practice pressure on Israel. The Arab world does not have the power to practice uh, influence on Israel or in the uh, on on the United States and, and the Europeans. So they have no help from the outside. They are left alone, and being left alone means that you have to take responsibility for the future of your own constituency. And uh, so this combination actually uh, have led. Uh, has led to uh, the results we see in the last uh, few months. I see. Um, that That's very interesting. Actually, just like a, a continuation of what you just said about the international community, you referred to the Arab Spring, but do you think also what we just saw or specifically the Abraham uh, agreements with the UAE and, and the other countries, the Gulf countries, um, also influence what we see here in Israel, the, the happening, or 
do you think that uh, it somehow put the Palestinian issue or taking it from the front and put it in the back? They were willing to negotiate without solving the Palestinian issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, Netanyahu's strategy, he could, uh, the, the Israeli establishment, Netanyahu speaks in the name of the Israeli establishment, was actually to sub- sideline the Palestinian issue. In the last 20 years, Sharon, uh, 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 Netanyahu uh, tried to sideline the Palestinian issue. Uh, and Netanyahu actually was the most uh, talkative about it, saying that actually trying to change the formula uh, that was a conception that has been institutionalized in the Israeli mind for a long period of time, meaning that in order to uh, normalize Israel's relations with the Arab world, we need to solve the Palestinian problem, Netanyahu tried to change this formula, saying in order to solve the Palestinian problem or the Palestinian conflict, the conflict with the Palestinians, we need to normalize first our relations with the Arab world. And, and he managed Actually, as a result of the Arab Spring, what happened in uh, in the Gulf states, and they are not part of the Arab Spring. You know, the Arab Spring took place in Egypt, in Libya, in, in Tunisia, uh, and, and Syria, uh, partly in, in, in Lebanon, and so on. Not in the kingdoms, neither in Jordan, nor in Morocco, uh, nor in, in the Gulf states. And, you know, some scholars, a few scholars have discussed this, why here and not there, but this is not our issue. Meaning that the instability in many Arab states have led to a situation where Americans have become much more influential in guaranteeing the stability of states in the Middle East. And uh, it started with the Obama uh, administration, but with the coming of Trump and the very pro-Israeli stance taken by the Trump, influenced, of course, by the evangelist community inside the United States and the ideology he led, the, the lead, actually has led to a situation where Netanyahu's strategy got a very strong backwind and uh, leading actually to the Abraham Accords, uh, sidelining the Palestinian issue. But this is part of what I said before, that the Arabs inside Israel, the Arab Palestinians inside Israel have, have seen that they have not nothing to expect from the Arab world, neither from those that experience the Arab Spring, nor from the kingdoms. Uh, and therefore, um, if they um, do anything, they have to do it themselves. I think... They are following a strategy that the Fatah movement adopted back in 1965. The non-intervention strategy of Arafat and his comrades, when they established Fatah and later on uh, 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 controlled the PLO, was uh, the strategy was that don't intervene in our issue, uh, in our politics, we don't intervene in your internal affairs. Um, this agreement, informal agreement with the Arab states, actually was a strategy adopted by the PLO at the time. I think that the, uh, the Palestinians in, inside Israel uh, have been led to this strategy. It's not that they developed it actively, but they have led, they concluded, they deduced it from the reality, political reality in which they uh, are experiencing in the last two uh, years, that they, uh, they have nothing to uh, expect from the Arab world, 
the uh, the Palestinian problem, the Palestinians are split, are very weak, and therefore they should uh, take care of their own interests uh, as long as their interests don't clash with the Palestinian interests. And that's why, you know, the, the, the discussion or the, the tension between the different parties within the Palestinian community I spoke about before is taking place. Because some are saying this clashes, joining the coalition, you know, clashes with the Palestinian, grand Palestinian interest. And, and some are saying, no, we, didn't, we are discriminated against as Palestinians, so we can't forget that we are Palestinians. And therefore, don't worry, we are uh, going to carry on with our politics and ho hoping that we can lead the current government not to, maybe not to take uh, major steps vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, but at least ease the daily aggressive policies in the meanwhile they're not managing you know when we're looking at how many palestinians were killed by the israeli army in the last few days we see they're not managing very much they have not no much influence on foreign policy and 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 security policy as i said before so uh, that's why i'm saying it's an experiment we have to wait and see yeah that's a that's a really great point you highlighted um what concessions the Arab parties have to make in order to enter in these coalitions and what they can expect in return. Um, what we had noticed in the media is that Abbas and Ram have been criticized by various um, segments of, of Arab society for not capitalizing sufficiently on the political power that they had, especially during the coalition negotiations. So now that they're actually in the governing coalition, what, what changes do you think can actually occur? Um, I, th I think you mentioned a few, but but realistically, what's the best case scenario for them? Yeah. Well, let's say um, the following: in the grand uh, infrastructural, uh, I would say, uh, Zionist policies, nothing is going to change. Meaning the basic. Uh, policies that have been taken by Israeli governments in the last few decades are going to continue. Meaning, in security affairs, I don't expect that this government is able to take serious measures to change uh, security policy vis-a-vis -vis Hamas or lead to reconciliation with Hamas or actually uh, open new page with Mahmoud Abbas, the, uh, you know, the, the Palestinian president, and uh, go for serious negotiations to solve the Palestinian problem. I don't expect this to happen. But do you think Ram did? Sorry, do you think Ram expected to actually influence either of those? I can't tell you what they expected. I think they are realistic enough not to have expected such a thing, but they couldn't have admitted it publicly. Uh, so any anybody anybody who uh, thought that joining the coalition could have uh, could lead to major changes in security policies and foreign affairs, I think is a mis does not read the, the political reality in Israel. What could change, and I think this has to do not only with Ram but also with the nature of the government, specifically with the fact that we have two left Zionist parties inside the coalition, Meretz and Labour Party, who have uh, very courageous leaders, 
who are liberal, secular, Democrats, uh, very aware of the importance of welfare state and uh, welfare services. Uh, they are very aware of the need to change the ecological uh, policy of the Israeli government. So they are putting a lot of energy in actually empowering the services given by the state. And as a result, the Arab-Palestinian community will gain. So it's not a result only of Ram being there. It's, it's a change. It's a debate, I would say, taking place within the government between the welfareists and the nationalists, who are neoliberals and, uh, uh, and very capitalists. So this debate is, uh, uh, works for the benefit of Ram uh, in some cases, not because Ram has uh, the influence needed uh, uh, to put pressure on its coalition partners, but actually because of the nature of this coalition. So I think here, uh, if they had thought about it before or not, if they it was part of their strategy or not, uh, I, I I can't promise you when when I was consulted by one of their leaders about how to run the negotiations. I'm not their consultant. Uh, it happens that we are friends. And he called to ask, you know, what do you think? Uh, what kind of uh, things we have to take care of and, and pay attention to and uh, 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 be aware of and so on and so on. So uh, uh, I think they, they did not think about uh, working together with merits and, uh, and labor in order to put more pressure. But it happens that they are there and, uh, and therefore we can expect some changes in funding, in the allocation of resources. Uh, the discourse is changing vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians inside Israel. We see the, the, the interior minister speaking differently. We see the, uh, the, the uh, internal security minister speaking differently. The justice minister is speaking differently. On the other hand, we see in practical uh, daily uh, politics, that the, uh, the citizenship law was, you know, failed not because the coalition wanted to fail. Actually, the, the coalition wanted the citizenship law to be confirmed and extended, meaning that family unification between Palestinians cannot happen according to the majority of, of, of this government. Um, the nation state law was not changed. Uh, equality uh, as a basic law was not legislated and it's not expected to be legislated. Uh, the you know the, the judicial system, oh, the pressure on the judicial system has been uh, eased, but uh, we still don't see uh, a serious reform there taking place because the justice minister is a conservative and very suspicious of the power, uh, the influence that the judicial system has on the uh, Israeli political scene. So. Uh, if we go, you know, field by field, we see that some changes are taking place. Not much, not enough. It's still early to judge. We are only two months in the history of this government. Uh, I think we should give it a chance. And we ought to give it a chance. And I think the experiment I spoke about before 
um, when it comes to RAM, is worth taking. So let's wait and see, you know, meet in a year or so and, and see what, what, uh, what happens. So I guess, you know, you mentioned the fact that sort of the discourse and the language around, um, around the, the Palestinian minority within Israel is also cha- is changing within the government. So how, uh, how do you think that the results of this election influenced public perception around the role of Arab parties within Israel's government? Uh, I guess, you, so you said the discourse within the government is changing, but also among the population. Not, not very much among the not very much. I think uh, Israel has been uh, uh, going into a very, very, uh, I would say, a radical nationalist religious uh, um, discourse uh, and, and perceptions in the last few decades. We speak about the nationalization and religious religionization of the Israeli society, uh, meaning that religion plays more and more role in the decision-making of the Israelis in general, uh, and Israeli Jews, I mean, in general. <clears throat> this is true for the Palestinians, but we are talking about the Jew- Jewish community now. Uh, so uh, when it comes to the public in general, I think the public is uh, fed uh, with uh, more elections, uh, is tired of more promises, uh, doesn't trust the politicians, and therefore is willing to expect any coalition as long as no elections will take place. I think that's what we see, especially the fact that we are in a time of a pandemic. So I think the public in this regard is more, I would say, pragmatic uh, than we have expected, uh, is more realistic about the possibilities than we have expected. It doesn't mean that the basic issues, the basic beliefs have changed. If the numbers will be different next time, we're going to see that this trend I spoke about is going to come back. Um, But again, it's an open game. Uh, politics is very, very fluid. Uh, everything is in flux. And uh, we will have to wait and see. Yeah. 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 I also, I really hope that something of that sort will happen. Um, I, I have to say that I am, well, maybe I'm a slight optimist, but I have, like, I'm, I'm an Israeli and I have friends from different segments of the Israeli population. And I think that the fact that an Arab party joined the coalition and all hell didn't break loose, like some people were expecting, is something as well. It definitely didn't, as, as, like, as well as I can see, didn't change all this course, but people are more relaxed with the situation, which can normalize it. I hope so, at least. Yeah, yeah. For for, for liberal uh, democratic Israelis, yes, uh, there are liberal segments inside Israeli society, and there are also realists inside Israeli society that were afraid in the past from having a, a, a party joining the, the government, and 
and now have a proof that you know the hemel doesn't fall, uh, the sky doesn't fall. Uh, so why not try it? If, you know, uh, 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 and that's why it's. I said strategically, it's a good step, and it opens a new ball game that we will have to wait and see what happens. So speaking about political science, do you think there are structural factors unique to Israeli's political system that actually allow minority groups to have disproportionate power? People have to understand that in a proportional uh, parliamentary system, a small minority which becomes dominant, which means without which no coalition is, could be formed, can become very totalitarian. And that's what happened actually in Netanyahu's last 10 years. It's a, it's a despotic minority politics that won a majority in the parliament, it's true, but the supporters of Netanyahu is not the majority. But the fact that it's a proportional system with many parties there, he was able to manipulate the system in a way that he was always able to win a majority in the parliament. When, when he lost this option, he saw he lost his power. So in a proportional assist, parliamentary system, uh, it's very problematic. And I think the critique on liberal democracy, representative democracy, we hear in the, you know, in, 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 the, in the academia and in research, as well as in the media, is true. It's more acute, it's more problematic in parliamentary system like Israel. Unlike the UK, for instance, it's also parliamentary system, but it's a majoritarian system, means that you have three parties in the parliament. So you need, sometimes, I mean, now Johnson rules with, a, with, with, with one party. He doesn't need a coalition. So it's, it's more like, because it's a, you know, a, 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 a regional majoritarian parliamentary system, it could lead to more stability. Uh, it's also unlike the German or the uh, French systems, which are also parliamentary, but um, has a different uh, election rules. Uh, so um, um, it's more stable, and the threshold is very high. Uh, in Germany, five percent; Israel, three point two five. So, anyways, uh, the proportional system is actually creating a reality inside Israel that democracy is actually endangering its own stability, and therefore a reform inside the system has to take place. And they hope that this coalition will take the opportunity and the responsibility, uh, be responsible enough to introduce reforms, despite the fact that any reform could work against the interests of the small parties. So we will have to wait and see. I think from a democratic point of view, uh, and in this regard, I'm a, I'm a very uh, 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 strong Democrat. I think we, we have to expect from them uh, to introduce a serious reform to change the system uh, so we don't repeat this uh, problematic, problematic reality we have experienced in the last uh, couple of years. But we will have, again, uh, to wait and see. Yeah. What do you think Arab politicians 
should take away from this election in terms of their future strategy? Good question. Um, I, I think the best uh, um, they can take away from this election is to be better contact with their community. Uh, I am in the middle of writing, at the end actually, of writing an article about um, trying to explain actually the turnout uh, in, in the Arab community. And we saw that the turnout changed according to uh, what elections we look at. And when the joint list was there, the turnout was very high. When the joint list was not there, when they split, actually, the, 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 the turnout was much lower. Um, and the voting patterns changed. When the joint list was there, it won 85 to 95% of the vote in the Arab uh, towns. When it wasn't there, the numbers changed. <clears throat> so I think the kind of transaction and interaction between the Arab leaders and the community has to change. Uh, one of the strong points of the Islamic movement is that it's, it's a, what we call integrative party, integrative movement, meaning it gives services not only in the field of politics, the education and health and so on. So it's very authentic, it's very close to the community, and that's why the support for it is there automatically. The other parties don't have this power. And therefore, if they to learn anything from what happened, I think they have to re-establish their the trust with the community. They have to establish um, uh, better communication with the community and uh, speak a different language uh, with the community in order to really make them uh, at least acknowledge, make the community acknowledge or recognize that they are doing everything possible in order to serve the, the interests of the community, something that many people did not trust to be happen, happening uh, in the last uh, few years. I think this is to be learned, definitely. You know, I think we just had a couple of closing questions. The first being, if there's one thing you would like our les- listeners to take away from these particular political events, what would it be? The centrality and importance of uh, democratic politics for every person and the fact that democracy is a counterintuitive system, meaning that it doesn't happen by itself. We have to create it. We have to invest in it. We have to work hard in order to maintain it and sustain it. And if we don't do that, we actually give the responsibility on our future for people who are willing to do anything to uh, exploit the system for their own interests. This is one thing. The other thing uh, uh, to say is that democratic politics cannot be but uh, 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 politics of tolerance and mutual understanding and, and, uh, and communication. Uh, open for uh, compromises. Uh, and the third thing, very important, is that welfare politics is a very central component of any humanistic politics. And I think uh, uh, the fact that 
we are in a in a wave of new liberal, very radical conservative capitalist uh, period, shows that uh, uh, polarization inside society, any society, any democratic society you can think of, whether the United States, UK, Germany, France, and so on and so on, including Israel, is is leading to a, a very fragile reality in which the system could fall into the hands of a very small minority, very narrow interests, and therefore uh, the civic spirit has to be maintained um, in order to enforce the government to support the infrastructure institutions that give services to the public. And I think this is very important to take into consideration as a result of what's happening in Israel in the last few years and decades. Okay. Um, you and the the second question you mentioned your article that you are now finishing writing. But in general, what would you recommend our listeners to read in order to learn more about Arab minority population or minority political activism more generally? Read my book. <laughs> on, Which one? There's so many. <laughs> no, I'm reconstructing the civic in English. You know, listeners are English speakers. Uh, mostly maybe uh, the, the book on reconstructing the civic actually the title is an argument you know you need to reconstruct the civic in order to engage more people and be more democratic and more inclusive and vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, of course nationalist chauvinist and, and uh, 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 radical uh, uh, politics this is you know, uh, although, you know, it's about Israel and about the Palestinian community inside Israel, but the lessons from there are, are uh, universal. This is one thing. Uh, you know, there are many books on the uh, uh, Palestinian uh, community inside Israel uh, that came out also recently. There's a book uh, by two colleagues of mine, Mohammed Mustafa and Asad Ghanim, uh, Cambridge University Press 2019, uh, on the Palestinian community inside Israel. About Israeli politics, you have plenty of books about Israeli politics that just came out recently. So um, anybody who wants uh, uh, to hear more and to know more is welcome to look at my website. There are many articles there as well as books. And of course, can write me an email and they'll be very happy to help. Perfect. And I can second the recommendation of Reconstructing the Civic, which I, which I read and really enjoyed. <laughs> so... Um, on that note, thank you so much for being here. This has been an absolutely fascinating interview. And thanks to all of our listeners for joining us on this wild ride through the Arab parties of Israel and parliamentary politics. Uh, we hope you've learned as much as we have. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please do subscribe to the Formalized Curiosity podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and stop by at our discussion forums at formalizedcuriosity.substack.com.